we had nowhere near meeting that demand. You know, we I think at peak we had about 1,200 people on our waiting list. And to put that in context, we give away about 120 bikes a month. Welcome to Shopify Masters, the weekly podcast brought to you by Shopify, your companion for starting and building a business. I'm Shwang Esther Shan, and this week we are chatting with Jim Stein, the founder of The Bike Project, a UK-based community of refugees, cyclists, mechanics, and volunteers that sells and restores bikes to get more refugees biking. In this episode, Jim shares how he grew the concept of The Bike Project from a university volunteer experience, how he was able to scale to donate over a thousand bikes a year, and what it took to meet a massive spike in demand due to COVID-19. Before our show, I wanted to chat about Shopify shipping. Did you know you can buy shipping labels for your orders at home and print them with a regular printer, get shipping insurance for the United States, receive discounted rates with certain carriers, all with Shopify shipping? There are no additional fees, no carrier accounts required or apps required. This is all included with your Shopify plan. So check out Shopify shipping today at shopify.com ship. Now on to our show. The Bike Project has been running for almost a decade. With locations in London and Birmingham, the community intakes used bikes, restores them, and resells them, all the while donating bikes to refugees, allowing newcomers to have a more cost-effective and active way to commute and adjust to life in the UK. The Bike Project donates over a thousand bikes a year, and it's on its way to earn over a million dollars in revenue this year. It all started when Gemstein was in university and befriended a refugee named Adam from Darfur. I was a student at the London School of Economics, and I joined a befriending scheme for unaccompanied uh, refugees uh, who were then asylum seekers. And through that, I met a boy called Adam. And Adam was a, an asylum seeker from Darfur in the West of Sudan. Adam arrived with literally just the clothes on his back and he was fleeing the fighting in Sudan. And he arrived and he said, I'm a refugee and uh, I want to apply for asylum. And so age just 16, he applied for asylum. And in the UK, that means you're given just £35 a week to live off and you're not allowed to work. And that limbo can last many years whilst your claims being processed. It takes a very long time. And during that period, as you can imagine, the cost of living in somewhere like London is more expensive than £36 a week, right? And one of the big costs there is actually the cost of public transport. So a bus pass by itself is £21 a week. So one of the first things I did for him was get him a bike. And that allowed us to like do activities together. So, you know, take him to do some sport, take him to the cinema. And it meant that he could access resources, facilities, and all sorts of services that he wouldn't be able to afford to access if he didn't have access to a bike. And then when I graduated from university, I got thinking a bit and set up the bike project in my spare time. We kind of collected old bikes, did them up, donated them to refugees locally. And um, yeah, to cut a long story short, I ended up quitting my job and setting up as an independent charity. And we launched in March 2013. So that is that's kind of how I started the bike project. Amazing. Before we dig more into the bike project, I do wanted to ask about this crossroads you were at, you know, graduating, there's job offers, um, there's employment opportunities. How did you make that decision to say, you know, I do want to start this project on my own and I'm going to actually not be employed 
and take that risk? So I think the thing to like bear in mind is I was like very young and very stupid. People often say to me that, you know, you were brave to start the bike project, you know, when you didn't have any money to like support it or whatever. And the truth is like, I really didn't understand like what I was getting myself into. I got luck. We, you know, I pulled it off, but like, um, I can like pretend that it was a calculated risk and that these are the factors I weighed up. I didn't really think about, I didn't really understand what I was getting myself in for. Um, but I think in terms of the upside, I, I felt like, you know, I'd done my research about the impact it could have. And I felt that it could be really big. There are lots of asylum seekers, you know, around 30,000 asylum seekers arrive in the UK every year. Um, and there are lots of bikes abandoned in London. So around 27,000 bikes are abandoned every year in London. So you have a huge amount of bikes. You've got a huge amount of people that need them. So my vision, simply put, was to match the two. In terms of logistics and business model and business plan, I kind of figured that all out as I went rather than having kind of some kind of grand plan when I when I left my last job. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, starting with your friend, Adam, it might have been an easier approach. You can see the impact right away. But how do you move outside of your friend circle and your volunteer circle to start scaling this idea and actually deal with the logistics of turning this into a full blown charity? I think like the first step is you have to have a business model, right? I think initially I, when I looked at it, I, you know, I felt like we could raise money through fundraising, right? Traditional charity fundraising, nonprofit fundraising. And that's what we did. And that's how we got going. But quite quickly, I realized like we were getting bikes donated to us, right? So we we collect old bikes, we refurbish them, we donated them to refugees and asylum seekers. What I realized quite quickly is we were getting quite nice bikes, bikes that were new and quite valuable. People were actually not just donating us old, rubbish, rusty bikes that would have not worth much anyway. People were donating us like bikes that were worth like several hundred, if not several thousand pounds. And the other thing that was happening is like there was at that point and to an extent still is, a big trend towards like vintage bikes. Vintage bikes became very fashionable in London for a long period of time. So we're getting these really valuable resources. And also it was not that great to be donating them because refugees didn't have secure places to store them. So if you donated those bikes, they were just going to get stolen. They were more likely to be stolen than the bikes to be more appropriate to donate to refugees. So we started selling initially through eBay. So eBay, I have an eBay for charity scheme. We started selling bikes through there, you know, refurbished them on a small scale. And quickly we realized actually that had potential. You know, the bikes were selling quite quickly. We were getting quite a lot of demand, but we we wanted to kind of scale that quite quickly. Uh, So around 2016, we raised some investment um, into the bike project to build a website and also to like build up our capacity to refurbish the bikes essentially we launched on shopify in like early 2016 which was really exciting and what that meant is that we could build more of a brand than on ebay um it meant we could use our google ads grant so um as a non-profit we get a grant from google every month in the form of in-kind credits on google it meant also that we could upsell so we could sell other bikes we could sell accessories etc with it and through that we've built a business over the years so um, in our first year, I think we only sold like about 15, 20 grand through the website. Uh, and that was maybe 2016 was our first full year of, of trading. Uh, and in 2020, which was last year, we did about, uh, so this is in pounds, uh, 520,000 pounds through the website. So in, in 
four years we we ramped up quite relatively quickly helped in part by like the boom in cycling around the pandemic so that so at the heart of it like it was the business model that's allowed us to grow and that's in itself also allowed us to raise more charitable donations off the back of it mm-hmm. looking back it does look like a bigger pivot maybe than in that moment because once you did start to think you're gonna shift that model of taking a bike and donating it to a refugee and add in this selling component. At the time, did it felt like a monumental decision? How did you come to terms with adjusting the model as you went? So I think initially when we were doing like a handful of bikes, it didn't feel like such a big deal. Today, it's around 50-50. And we made that decision consciously about a couple of years ago that we were going to increase the percentage of bikes that we were selling. And that felt like a big deal because... In some ways, it feels like, well, actually, these are bikes that could be going to refugees, but the resource, um, the bike, it really is like a helpful asset, but we get lots and lots of bikes, right? There are lots more bikes that we could get in and refurbish. What we really need is more money to pay mechanics to refurbish the bikes to donate, right? So for every bike we sell, we can donate around three bikes to refugees. So when you look at that kind of return on investment, if you like, it's kind of a no brainer, but we still get questions today, you know, so it is still a bit of a tension in the model, but um, it's something we kind of, we're constantly dealing with and constantly addressing and actually constantly adjusting as well. And that's very cool to see because with that small adjustment, you are exponentially stretching that impact, you know, that one versus three bikes donated. You mentioned briefly about grants and also being a charitable company that you're applying and leveraging these grants. Does it sometimes feel like that's like a whole nother job? Fundraising is like a whole other department, right? So we have like a team of fundraisers that raise money for us. Like I help as well. Running a nonprofit is like having two businesses. There's the business where you're like delivering the service that creates an impact. And there's the business where you're raising the money to fund that service. It's almost like in a private business, you might have two income streams, two completely separate business. One makes a loss, one makes profit and the profit subsidizes the loss, right? Which wouldn't make any sense, but it gives you a sense of like the effort that you go to, to run both activities effectively. Tell us a little bit about the different teams and the different individuals involved. Cause I think you mentioned there's mechanics, there's that fundraising team. What are some of the other teams that you have within the bike project? At the core of what we do are bike mechanics. So they refurbish the old bikes. Um, and we employ, I think, about 16 bike mechanics across London and, and Birmingham, which is the UK's second biggest city. We also have a fundraising team, um, fundraising and marketing team kind of together, that work together. And also uh, we have an operations team that support, you know, collection of bikes, maintenance of the workshops and delivery of bikes. Um, we also deliver a couple of other programs around donating bikes. So kind of our core work is donating bikes. To refugees, our core impact work. And since 2013, we've donated almost 8,000 bikes. We also run a project called Pedal Power, and we employ a couple of staff to deliver that. Uh, through that, we teach refugee women who've never cycled before um, to cycle for the first time. The reason we do that is that in our experience, many women that we come across who are asylum seekers or refugees um, have never cycled before. Um, because they come from countries where it's not socially acceptable to cycle for women to cycle. And so we teach them from scratch. So they can benefit in the same way. So we have a team that runs that. And then we have a, a person that runs a project called Bike Buddies, where we match refugees with volunteers to go on rides together and try and build more of a community and support them with their um, personal development, as well as giving them a bike. 
That's so great to hear. And I think biking not just opens up the opportunity to discover more of their community, but it's so great for physical and also mental health and just connecting to new people within the community as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's crazy to hear that there's so many teams involved in the bike project. You starting out just as one individual, how was the journey of letting go of responsibilities expanding the team and in a sense, building out this whole group of individuals to carry out this vision that you had? Look, it's been really challenging. Um, if I'm honest, like letting go of responsibility, I think emotionally is not something that I struggled with. I think I like delegating. I like hiring someone that's really good at something that I'm not that good at, that I've been kind of making do with. Do you know what I mean? Piecing it all together, building the team, developing the team and managing that infrastructure. It has been like a real challenge, particularly because I was like pretty inexperienced when I started um, and I've had to kind of learn as I go. It's, it's been hugely challenging and I'm still learning very much so. And it's last whatever it's been, 15 months of, of the pandemic has definitely really pushed us hard in terms of, you know, how do you keep a team, how do you keep an operation going and a team motivated through several lockdowns, which we've had here through hundreds of thousands of deaths. It's, you know, everyone knows someone that's, that's died from COVID and it, it's been a really challenging period. I feel like I learn a new thing every day about how to run an organization. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's dig into COVID a little bit more because I think it's such a weird time, especially for a business dealing with cycling. It seems like everyone wanted a bike during COVID and also you're faced with probably logistics restrictions. And how was that handling like a surge in demand, but also a surge in just restrictions and uh, dealing with logistics hard is the very short answer to your question um so yeah look it's been it's been challenging i'd say like i quote him like really loosely here but i think like jeff bezos a few years ago wrote a like summary to investors where he talks about like maintaining the principles of um a startup maintaining the values of a startup the benefits of startup as you scale right and i think one of the things that we've done well that he talks about is what he calls high velocity decision making. And I think, and that also means not me not having to sign off on every decision. Um, And I think what we have managed to maintain is we've grown to, you know, 30 odd staff now, you know, we're still like an ant compared to Amazon, right? So I I mean this comparison very loosely, but I think one of the things that we try to, we try to do is maintain that. So there's not like seven committees that have to make a decision, have to go through to make a decision. And that did allow us to pivot really quickly um, in the face of the pandemic. And, you know, react both to new opportunities, but also to new challenges around logistics. The first period was hard, but at least it was summer. So people could be out and about. It was really, we had a really nice summer last year um, when the new lockdown was introduced in, in December this year and then didn't really ease to like March 31st to have like full lockdown for that period um, was like definitely like the toughest like three months of my life um, in terms of keeping the team motivated through like you know, grey, horrible English winter. Um, and, you know, with huge logistical difficulties around COVID, keeping the... So it was challenging because our, our mechanics were going in, but our office staff weren't. And so we wanted to keep our mechanics safe, but continue to deliver our impact by donating bikes and still generate revenue to cover that cost by selling bikes and to keep balance that against keeping the mechanics t- safe and supporting them adequately with a team that was suddenly all working remotely was hugely challenging and I'm 
hopefully we'll never have to go through that again. But it was um, it was very hard. Was there any point where it seemed like the demand was too high that you didn't have enough time or the logistics in place to meet that ever during COVID? Oh, yeah. Through most of COVID, I'll the demand in in both senses from refugees and from customers is outstripped supply. So I'll to put it put it this way. Normally we aim for a conversion rate of like for sales. This is of about like three to four percent. For the f- last summer, our conversion rate was about zero point two percent because we just couldn't keep up with the demand. From you know we were selling more bikes than ever. We were refurbishing more bikes than ever for the website, but like we just couldn't keep up with the traffic that was coming to the website. Like that was the that was the difference. Um, so it was like, it was pretty mad. Um, but also from, um, from refugees, because, you know, all of a sudden it's not just that the challenge of London is not just that like public transport is expensive, but the public transport is like dangerous in the sense that you're more likely to catch COVID. So huge demand from refugees. And that's been really, really challenging managing people. You know, we had nowhere near meeting that demand. You know, we, I think at peak we had about 1200 people on our waiting list and to put that in context we give away about 120 bikes a month so you can do the maths in terms of how long that was going to take us to get to people so it's been very challenging and it's been hard to manage expectations of of refugees that we're just not gonna you know it's going to take us a long time to get them a bike and that that's been tough but look we hope you know we've we've ramped up and we're really fortunate that like cycling is one of those things that's done well and and we've we've massively expanded and reached reaching more refugees than ever before so you know we're really grateful that we've had the opportunity to do more because cycling has has boomed so much Mm -hmm. did you make any changes to the online store in any way to uh, anticipate or assist with the higher traffic and like did you change anything in the aspects of your ads uh, digitally during that period as well our ads kind of remain the same. We 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 introduced a few more products and added ads for those. So we started selling new bikes for the first time, which went well last summer. Um, and we introduced like a greater range of accessories for people to buy with their bikes. And yeah, and generally we, we're always adjusting this, but we use a few um, different cross-selling and upselling uh, apps slash features of Shopify. And they, we introduced a few more. We used the tipping function that I think was introduced last summer. I lose track of time a bit. But um, it was roughly around then. So we used that and, and lots of different ways. You know, we sort of sensed there was an increased demand. And, you know, if we could tweak things that meant people would like increase basket size a bit. Um, so, yeah, introducing apps that um, gave discount of accessories when you added it to the basket, um, the tipping function, and then also like post checkout as well. So just giving people lots of opportunities um, to get involved to support us in a way that we probably wouldn't have got away with like having that kind of user journey pre-COVID people would have been put off by um being having so many different way distractions on the way to the checkout um but because of the extra demand you can kind and because we didn't have enough products um and enough bikes anyway you we could kind of get away with it do you know what I mean and that massively increased the average basket size I say massively it was probably about 16 17 percent something like that which is big for us. Yeah, still still a significant increase. So speaking of new bikes, what was the decision process of that to include? We were capitalizing on the demand, but also, um, you know, our, we, you'd go on our shop page, right? And it would, it would just be like pretty bare. There'd be like a handful of bikes, secondhand bikes there. So what new bikes did is it allowed the, the whole thing to look, to feel like there were more options for customers. Even if they weren't buying the new bikes, it was like, oh, well, 
because you don't want to go to a store and go, oh, there's six things for me to choose. Even if you like one of them, it, it just feels empty, right? So new bikes allowed the whole, the secondhand bikes as well to feel more attractive, I think, in that way, but also were um, in their own right a good a good option um and we we sold lots of them the other thing is right so e-commerce is much easier if like you are you buy like a product line and then you just like sell it through them right whereas with our bike our second hand bikes every bike's unique so every bike needs its own listing and that in itself is an effort you know you both in terms of like gathering the details photography all of that stuff whereas with new bikes it's just you list the product once with the size variant for highs and color variants if there are them and then that's it until they're all sold out and then you just order some more so that's much easier from a store management perspective then you know we've got the process down in terms of listing secondhand bikes but it's still like time effort and money do you know what i mean how long is the average process of like receiving a donated bike to it actually appearing online because i love your listing because it mentions the mechanic who worked on the bike and there's so many great images but i do imagine that it does take a long while so we have a triaging system so you know as the bike comes if it's like a basically based on how much work the bike needs so at the fastest it will take maybe 10 days to go through the system and be on you know from the point it's donated to online um at the slowest it can be like four or five weeks if it's like met a bike that maybe need more work um but yeah it's it's a whole stage you know the bike has to be assessed um has to be worked on it has to then be assessed to check it safe photographed added to our added to the website and then described and the features listed so it's it is a whole process. Yeah, I can only imagine. Are there any new programs or avenues that are in the works that you can share? So one of the things that we trialed as well over the last year is introducing bike servicing um, and allowing people to book through the website. And that has been really effective. And we are looking to like scale that up and also, again, trial cross-sell opportunities when people book in for bike servicing. That's something, again, we're using our Google Grant to drive traffic to those pages and trying to ramp that up. And that's been a real success story this year. But yeah, we're investing in more capacity there. We're investing in a new range, small merchandise, so more um, new range of bike jerseys. Uh, we've got a new, like, call it like a buff, which is more of a winter thing, um, which will roll out probably around autumn time. Yeah, those are the, like, the kind of main things that we're, we're working on at the moment. And I think merchandising is a great way for someone to support because, you know, maybe they're not in the market for a new bike, but they love what you guys are doing. So, yeah, that's great. <laughs> Thank you. The other thing that we're doing is is that we have, to, again, um, I feel like has, has gone well over the last year and we're trying to increase it is, is adding. Uh, and one of the features that we've added is, is having like a donation as a product. So one of the products that you cross sell is the ability to donate a bike to a refugee um, or donate accessories we have different levels that you can donate at with different prices and that's worked like that's been probably the most effective thing in terms of raising donations through the website because it's easy for people just to add on 20 pounds and if they're buying a bike they can easily empathize with like the need for like a refugee to have accessories or have a whole bike or whatever product level that they they pick at and that that's worked quite well for us. And that's, yeah, I mean, you use the cross sell up, but you just create a normal Shopify product and and just describe it in that way and add the variants. I do want to ask about the business in general, because I think me hearing about the bike project, you know, despite being oceans apart, I do think it's such a beautiful setup of an organization. So if this model existed anywhere, I feel like anybody who's shopping for a bike would be interested to take a look, participate, maybe purchase a bike from you. So is it the right assumption to think is 
you are not necessarily competing against the normal bike shop. So in terms of bikes, like most people buy a bike from us having clicked on an ad about secondhand bikes or cheap bikes or something around eBay or, or, or another brand that sells cheap bikes. Um, so yeah, I kind of, we have different elements of right to our marketing, different income streams and have different marketing. Definitely our, our like fundraising is much more about like awareness raising, um, and content and generating interest, but our sales is much more like around pe- the initial step is that people click on an ad around bikes and then while well, no get to our website, we try and sell them the course as well, right? So you're not just buying a bike, you're buying, you know, these, you're buying bikes for refugees, you can, this is supporting a refugee and that, although what piques their attention is the price and the value that they're getting for the bike, what helps aid the conversion is the cause. That's, that's kind of how we, we approach it. Is there anything particular that you do with the sales funnel and the steps within their purchasing journey to ensure that there's details about bikes, there's details about pricing, but also the story of the bike project is carefully laced through that as well? So there's definitely more we can do. Um, But one of the things that we do is when you click on a product page, so you know how with a, well, most products you'd have like a list of features, but particularly with bikes have a list of features. Top of the list of features is this bike will pay for X amount of refugees to get other bikes. So you're kind of integrating it into where where people are going to look anyway to make sure the story comes out. And then, yeah, like we have blogs along the bottom of product pages and making sure that the product page really, because that's really where people are going to spend most of their time, right, is looking at the products. So if you can interweave the stories into the product page, I think that's the really important bit in terms of upsetting the cause. And then, yeah, as I mentioned before, when they add it to their basket, you then give them the opportunity to either like buy a, well, to buy an accessory or to buy, to buy a a bike for refugees. So essentially a donation, but you kind of pitch it as a, why don't you purchase a bike for a refugee? And and in that way, you kind of also interweave the story. And then finally, of course, there's our, um, I'm signing up for our mailing list. So um, people have to choose to sign up our mailing list and we, we grow our mailing list fairly quickly through people signing up and wanting to hear more about us. Um, So there's quite a potent sales funnel there too. So I guess starting officially in 2013, you're coming up almost to a decade. What were some key lessons for listeners who are interested in starting a business with social impact? So one of the first things I did when I went full time was I trained as a bike mechanic and I was like, a rubbish bike mechanic. I'm still a rubbish bike mechanic. It like is like I'm like a joke in the workshop, like a running joke about how bad a bike mechanic is. I am. Um and like actually that was one of the best things that happened to me because I realized that A, I wasn't very good. And B, where I add value and where actually I should be is not on the coal face. It shouldn't be me who's like spending time fixing bikes. It should be the founder that is leading the organization, running the organization, right? And I see in other organizations that I, um, I'm involved with, or like I, you know, I mentor other CEOs as well, is that there's often a tension because the, the founder or CEO, founding CEO or MD or whatever founded it because they think that the best way to pursue their cause is to found an organization and they think they'll be on the front line that way. But actually, when you run an organization, you're doing things like business plans, managing people, um, looking at finance, spreadsheets, HR, all of that stuff. And that's the stuff I like, actually. That's where I I like to be, although that's just good fortune. Um, Whereas a lot of people, I think, have a bit of a 
a crisis when they realize actually where they should be spending their time is not where they want to be spending their time. And they only realize that once they started the organization. So that's usually the advice I give to people is if you, it's a little different if you're just running it in your spare time as a voluntary organization, but if you want to run it as a full-time business and you want to scale it, think about what you want your role to be and how you enjoy spending your time. Cause it may be that if you really enjoy working on a cause, you should work in an organization, go get a job in an organization, which allows you to do that and let someone else, you know, worry about the stuff that entrepreneurs need to worry about. It is really cool to hear that, you know, the business side, the logistics, the operations is something you enjoy. I do wanted to ask, has there been any internal tension or some sort of balance between making a well-oiled system in the essence of a business and also the charity side? And like, what do you think about the two balancing sides, kind of the tension that exists within this business model? There is a tension to an extent, and in all charities, there is a little bit of a push and pull between the two wings. But fundamentally, everyone on the kind of operations service delivery side understand that someone has to pay their salaries, right? Somehow, you know, it doesn't. The money doesn't grow on trees. Um, there's no magic spot where you, you know pot, pot of gold at the end of the rainbow which you can just go to and and raid. And ultimately, nothing else can happen if. You are not a solvent organization. If you are not a financially sustainable organization, no one gets a bike. That's kind of how it is. Financial sustainability is not just a factor that you weigh up against other factors. Financial sustainability is the foundation of your organization. If you don't have foundations, nothing happens. So I think our team by and large get that. I'm not saying there's never a conflict. There's never a tension or push and pull between it. But I think fundamentally, we've managed to you know, get people to understand that how, how important that is. Hopefully this is not too existential, but I did wanted to ask. You were in school, you were in a volunteering program. I'm assuming there's lots of other students who also go through the same volunteering program and they also meet refugee students. But you were someone who was inspired by that experience to actually start this organization. What was it that just made you want to do this and also carry this forward? It's a good question. So I think like I... And so just to say up front, like I never saw myself as an entrepreneur. I never saw myself. I'm not one of those people who grew up thinking I'm going to start a business one day. I just need to find the right business to start. That was never me. Um, I absolutely never thought I would go down this path. Um, so yeah, that kind of begs the question, how did I end up on it? Um, and I think, I suppose a mixture of factors, I think definitely um, my experience with Adam uh, the refugee that I mentored, um, I befriended through the scheme, was definitely pivotal in in getting me there. I think um, my I think I always had a lot of empathy with the refugee cause. My parents are South African, and they're not refugees, but they moved to the UK from apartheid South Africa and talk often about the challenges that they faced as a as migrants moving to the UK um, in the seventies. Uh, you know, I'm Jewish, and I think that in the Jewish experience in Jewish history, you know the refugee cause and, and empathy towards refugees is, is huge because of the Jewish experience of being refugees. So I think I always felt an affinity to the cause. And um, I suppose that combined with my experience with Adam and seeing the impact that it had made me curious to kind of explore what more impact I could have through that. And yeah, here I am, I suppose, um, eight years later, eight more than eight years later, still, um, still pursuing it. I suppose, as I said, initially, there was no grand plan. It was 
let's give this a whirl and see how it goes. And then obviously I had to develop a plan as I went. It never, it never, I say like, I never saw myself as an entrepreneur, but uh, it also like, you know, a lot of people from LSE go to the city, you know, go work in the city of London, you know, go work in finance or banking or law. That never really appealed to me. Um, I think I always wanted to do work somewhere with us where I felt like I was having an impact. Um, probably it, I didn't think about this, but like that was always the path I think I was on. What about those early days after graduating? Because you're seeing your friends, classmates in whatever beautiful jobs that they have, um, living a very different life. What did your friends and family feel about this decision? And how did you feel in those initial days and years of setting this up? My parents have always been really supportive. And I was able to take a risk at the beginning into, from, a finan- from my personal financial perspective. They didn't need to bail me out, but I knew that if it all went very badly wrong, like I wasn't going to be homeless, right? I think it's really good for entrepreneurs to be honest about those things. I think a lot of entrepreneurs tell stories about like rags to riches. Oh, you know, I started in my, you know, my business in my bathroom with just like a piece of paper and a pen and look where I am now. I had a really, a really great support from my parents initially, like in terms of being that safety net and allowing me to, to take risks. Um, and so they've always been hugely supportive, thankfully. My friends, yeah, they were all like hugely supportive. Like I imagine some of them thought I was a bit crazy, but everyone kind of kept their counsel to themselves really initially. I had a brilliant mentor. Whilst he was mentoring me, left his job as a CEO, like I don't want to quite say on a whim, but like on an impulse after having a meeting with somebody and had an idea and left his job and set up another organization, which is now fantastically successful. Um and, you know, his his um, influence, not necessarily deliberately, but like seeing what he'd done and seeing him be successful definitely allowed me to think that it was possible. I appreciate that. And I think sometimes it's great to acknowledge the support that you, you do have and just giving like a realistic picture of how things have laid out. It's also really amazing to see how different individuals are leveraging e-commerce to create the change that they want to see. So it's cool to see members like you within the community. Thank you. Yeah. No, it's really awesome. Well, thank you so much, Jem, for joining me today. And I'm so excited to see what the Bike Project does next. Amazing. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Shopify Masters. I'm Shuang, and if you enjoyed Jem's story of building the Bike Project, please give us a review on your listening platform so Jem's story, along with many other founder stories, can be discovered by others. Until next time on Shopify Masters. Shopify Masters.